want to pause for just a moment here at the beginning of the sermon to acknowledge the beauty of the music on this day, all the way from the Cherub Choir to Andy Blosser and the Chancel Choir to Sung Wan, our organist on the Kleist organ. Would you thank all of our musicians for their great work? I'm tempted today to preach a sermon on the separation of church and state to give the theological underpinnings for this idea as well as the political ones. After all, there is a, a, a surge in the United States uh, of, of a movement called Christian nationalism, which seems to be the opposite of the separation of church and state and is instead absorbing the two into one movement. In fact, it began as a, that title began as a criticism of the movement, but the folks who are in it have, have adopted it as their own. The separation of church and state is, is truly something completely different. And even the text we heard today sounds like, at first hearing, that it is indeed a separation of church and of state. It's not. We'll get to that in, in, a, in a moment. Part of the problem with doing a sermon on separation of church and state, though, is which church are we talking about? I did a little reading this week and found out there are something like between 30,000 and 45,000 different Christian denominations around the world. That's a lot of different ways of seeing church. Which one of those churches should be engaged with the state and, and take over and, and, and rule from a theological position? Now, I know the folks who are Christian nationalists have a particular idea, but still, it's a, it's a worthwhile question to say, there's 30,000, maybe as many as 45,000 different denominations, even if only 1,000 of those are in the United States, which church should it be? Then also, if you look at the text, the story that Aaron just read for us, it's really clear that this is church and state uniting together to try and trap Jesus. We have the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the day, along with a group called the Herodians, who are politicians in their own right. They don't really like each other at all, but they see Jesus as a threat, so they want to unite together to take care of him, to get him out of their way. So even the text won't allow us to focus on the separation of church and state. Instead, it shows us what happens when church and state, when the religious leaders and the political leaders combine their powers. In fact, we saw a recent illustration of that. On January the 6th, when the insurrection took place, there were Christian symbols misused and misappropriated on that day. There were Bibles being carried. There were people wearing T-shirts with Scripture verses on them. Most egregious were the number of crosses that were used as symbols to inspire violence. At first, I was shocked. By the end of the day, I was angered. The cross of Jesus Christ announces God's declaration that the myth of redemptive violence is over. It announces that the only way for us to follow is in the way of love. The cross symbolizes God giving God's very self to the world in the name of love. And that love can never be stopped. Love can never be put down. So I'm tempted to preach that sermon about the separation of church and state. Now, I'm also tempted somewhat to, to preach a, a simpler, easier, sort of milder sermon. It would be a legitimate uh, interpretation of the text to say that basically what Matthew is telling us through Jesus' story here is to pay your taxes and serve God. I've preached a few sermons like that on this text before. 
I think it's important as, as citizens that we pay our taxes. Julie and I filed for an extension this year, but we, we did pay on October 15th. Pay, pay your taxes and, and serve God. And after all, wouldn't a simpler, milder, Tom Long is a great New Testament scholar. He calls that interpretation a mild and easy interpretation of the tax. Maybe we just should just have a milder sermon on this day, one that's happy and peppy and full of joy and, and makes us feel good. After all, it's a beautiful, gorgeous fall day. The, the colors are exploding all over Columbus. The Buckeyes won a tough game yesterday against a tough opponent. Hopefully most of you are in a good mood about that. And let's just, let's go for something simple and easy and fun. Maybe, Google, maybe I should have just Googled some inspirational quotes and, and shared those with a one or two minute comment on each of the quotes, four or five of those. But the text won't let us do that. Sometimes the church wants that. I have a good friend. His name is Alex. We'll call him Alex. That's not his real name. He's a pastor in a church. A few years ago, the church he was serving gave him his annual review. It came from the personnel committee. They said, Alex, we want you to give sermons that are never more than 10 minutes long, and they always have to have at least one joke, and we don't want anything serious in worship. And they were serious about their advice. And my friend quit a month later. He said to me, I didn't, I didn't accept a calling to be a pastor in the church of Jesus Christ to share the spiritual equivalent of baby food. His point was well taken and strong. So we have a text before us on this day that invites us to dive into a deeper level, to, to take it more seriously as it were, to ask what is being taught in here, what is being said to us, and frankly, what is the call? What is the challenge that comes at the end of this day if we take this story carefully and seriously? Notice how the, how the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, the religious leaders and the politicians, the church and the state, no, notice how they, how they at first compliment Jesus greatly. Oh, we know you're a wonderful teacher and a prophet. We, we know you show no partiality to anyone. It's a setup if there ever was one. You should be wary. Anytime somebody comes to you and says, hey, can we talk? And they begin with a couple of paragraphs about how great you are. You might want to do as we preachers do and put on the whole armor of God and be ready for whatever's coming next. I once got an anonymous letter that began with two paragraphs about my energy and all the good things that I brought to the church. This is way back when I was in Atlanta, almost 30 years ago. Two paragraphs, and boy, I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and then it was two pages typed, single-spaced, of how my theology is destroying the United States of America. Who knew I had that much power? I called, by the way, I called a mentor friend of mine in ministry and asked him, what, what should I do with this letter? Should I write a response in the, in the church newsletter? And my friend said, no, does your admin person have a shredder? Give it give it to them, let them shred it for you. So they begin with this, all, all this wonderful stuff about how great and amazing you are, Jesus. You are so brilliant. You're such a wonderful teacher. And then the Pharisees and the Herodians spring their trap. Do we give taxes to Caesar or not? Now you need to know a little bit about these two groups. They didn't like each other. The Pharisees thought the Herodians had sold out to the Romans. The Herodians thought the Pharisees were a lot of uptight religious people. But neither group liked Jesus. They saw Jesus as a threat to them. The Pharisees, as difficult as it was, had carved out a seat at the table of power. 
the Romans would basically allow the states that they ruled and governed in the Roman Empire to practice their local religion, whatever it might be, as long as that religion didn't politically or even militarily attack Rome, you could practice it, just stay out of our way. The Pharisees had carefully done so, and now they had a place, a privilege, power, and control. The Herodians were, were folks who greatly admired King Herod the Great, the one who was the Herod, the king of Judea, at the time that Jesus was born. Later, Herod's sons are now sharing in the leadership of Judea under the control and oversight of, of the Roman leaders, of course. But they saw the, Herodi the Herodians saw the Herods, Herod and his sons as brilliant political leaders, ones who had done some amazing work for them. King Herod the Great, after all, you, we know ugly things from the Bible about him. You remember the story in Matthew 2, where he has all the babies killed in Bethlehem. He was a tyrant. Yet by the same token, he was also a highly respected military leader. He, he would oftentimes lead his soldiers into battle. He was a, a symbol of courage and strength for them. He also was seen as a very savvy politician who even when things changed dramatically in Rome, he was able to keep his position as king of Judea under the oversight of Roman rule. His sons then ruled in similar ways. The Herodians, they've carved their piece of the table, their seat at the table. They have their piece of the power, their bit of control. They like where they are. Jesus, though, is very popular. He's been hailed as a prophet. He's been hailed just a couple of days before, what, the day we call Palm Sunday, as the great Messiah. If the people follow in, in Jesus' footsteps, oh, the Pharisees and the Herodians together, they're going to lose their power. They're going to lose their ability to control. They bind together and they come to Jesus. Oh, great teacher. Oh, great one who shows no partiality to others. Do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Did you hear the story as Aaron read it? What did Jesus say to them? You hypocrites. He's very clear. This isn't the sweet and gentle, meek and mild Jesus that we sometimes like to think of. This is a clear-voiced prophet challenging these ones. You hypocrites. What he's about to do is give them a physical demonstration of their hypocrisy. Give me a coin, he says. He holds up a coin. Whose image is it on the coin? You can almost hear the mumble, muffled sound of the Pharisees or the Herodians saying, well, it's, it's Caesar's. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. On a surface level, it sounds like separation of church and state, doesn't it? But what it is from Jesus is he's basically saying to them, who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow in the way of Caesar or are you going to follow in the way of love? Their hypocrisy is seen in the fact that they're standing in the temple. Now, you know the temple in Jerusalem is the holiest place in the Holy Land. They're teaching in the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Their teaching is very clear. You are not to have any graven images. And yet these ones who have carved their, their seat at the table of power are carrying around in their pockets and their purses the very graven image of a foreign leader who calls himself divine. You hypocrites, you've sold out. Are you going to continue to sell out in that way? Or are you going to give yourself to the way of love? It's no wonder they walk away 
in silence. In the summer before I came here to First Community to be your pastor, I was invited to serve as a keynote speaker at Tall Oaks Christian Camp, just outside of Kansas City. The keynote speaker would, would go every day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, with a 30-minute keynote. And then after that, there was about 150 high school kids. Those kids would be divided up into small groups, and they had discussion sheets to discuss and talk about the, the keynote, and what they'd heard, and what they, what they liked, and all, all that sort of thing. On the, on the last day, I said to the leaders of the camp, today I want to give just a 15-minute keynote, and then what I'd like to do is open up at, at the end for Q&A for questions and, and answers. I've, I've been getting a lot of questions at lunch and a lot of questions in the afternoons during free time. I'd love to give the kids all together at one place a chance to ask me anything they want, whether it's related to the keynote or not, about church, life, faith, family, anything. The, the leaders agreed. thought that'd be a great idea. So I did my little keynote, and then I said, any questions you have, anyone have that you want to ask, whether it's about today or anything else going on in the life of the world, this young woman stood up and raised her hand. She's 18, I think, just graduated from high school. I think the church is failing. Do you agree or not that the church is a failure? I instantly regretted my Q&A idea. <laughs> I said, tell me some more about well, why you think that. She said, the church I attend is in decline and no one seems to care. It seems to me when I pay attention to other churches around the community, the church is being marginalized, pushed aside, ignored, forgotten. What do we do? I said to the young people, I'm looking right now at about 150 of the brightest and best I've ever seen. This rising generation is what the church needs. This church, the church needs you to bring insight and guidance and strength and energy and youthful thought into the church. We need you to help us see beyond whatever conflict or whatever doubts or, or worries that might, might be there. We need you. But here's the thing I said to them, you're going to need to be brave because one of the first questions you have to ask is one of yourself. What do I in my life need to pay attention to? That's not an easy question to respond to, I said. And then the second question you need to ask are, what gifts and graces do I have? They're not going to be the same as the people sitting around you. Each of us has our own individual graces. And the question is, are you going to be willing to bring those gifts forward, to share with the church, to share with the world? And I ask these questions I told them of myself every week I'm in ministry. What do I need to pay attention to? And am I willing to give myself in the name of love to the needs of the church and of the, of the world? And then I said, I want you to know this. I have a view. I might, I might be in the minority of this view, but I feel very strongly that the people that Jesus recruited, both the men and the women who were in his inner circle, were basically 17, 18, 19-year-olds, maybe into their early 20s. Do you see what Jesus did? He formed a youth group, and that youth group followed Jesus. And in doing so, they changed the world. They changed the way time is being kept. They had an unbelievable influence in the earliest days of the church around the entire Mediterranean uh, uh, section of the world. The church exploded because the youth group got excited and took this word of God's love out onto the streets. You all can do it. But you're going to need to be brave. 
I reminded them, of course, that in the church, it includes those wiggly little babies, like the one I baptized this morning down at the 10 o'clock service, and it includes those who are moving more slowly in their older years and every age in between. As Jennifer said during the welcome, everyone in the Church of Jesus Christ is accepted as they are. And together, we're going to need to be brave. Yesterday, in this space, we celebrated the life of Don Ross Sr. Many of you know Don, I'm sure of that. He and his family moved to the Columbus, to the Columbus area in the 1970s, not long after they became members of our congregation. Many of you may also remember my good friend John Ross, who I've known for 30 years, who served this congregation as a minister of youth and then later as an executive minister. He is Don's son, one of Don's sons. John gave a beautiful sermon in honor of his father yesterday right here in our pulpit. It was a, an amazing distillation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the gospel of love, and a powerful tribute to the life that his, his dad lived. He told us in his sermon that his father had served in, in the Navy. He'd been a CB, a construction battalion, nicknamed the, the CBs. He knew when he heard a command, he was to follow it. John said he took the words of Jesus, the words of the Bible, and the great commandment as his personal command in life. What is that? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, with your whole self, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But John said, for his dad, it was more than a command. It was a calling. He felt called to love every person he encountered because he knows, you know this, he knows that every one of us is carrying something heavy. My friend John Ross has used that in a sermon before. I've said that myself. The first time I heard the idea that every one of us is carrying something heavy was when my predecessor, Dick Wing, used those words at a keynote event for a youth conference in Northern California that I was attending as a young adult. I've used it since then. Every one of us is carrying something heavy. That's why this command, this call from Jesus to go on the way of love matters so much. John concluded by saying, to know Don was to be loved by Don. You see, I don't think Jesus' frustration with the Pharisees and the Sadducees has much to do with this sort of combination of church and state, it has much to do with them worried about their, their, their seat at the, at the political table of power. Oh, that, I'm sure Jesus doesn't like that, but I think at the end of the day, what Jesus wants to know more than anything else is, will you, my friends, will you follow in the way of love? Or will you follow in the way of power? Will you go in the way of, of shalom? Or will you go in the way of control and might? Will you go in the way of peace, faith, and hope? If you say yes, you're going to need to be brave. As the poet said this morning, we'll need to be courageous. But the promise no matter what we encounter, no matter what we find along that difficult and narrow way, the promise is that God will be with us, that in every step, every movement, every time we give ourselves to the world in the name of love, God's very spirit will be there to comfort 
and strengthen us. Will you go in the way of love?